You're listening to the Insight to Action podcast program. My name is Donna Jones. I'm your host, and I have just returned from a month in Europe, both speaking and doing workshops in advanced decision-making mastery, which is a set of pretty sophisticated skills. So today I thought I'd do something a little bit different because I observed quite a bit of interest while I was on this last trip in becoming better at handling the rapid change that we've got underway, particularly when you go through the lens of decision-making. So part of that, when I do these workshops, involves the neuroscience of conversations. And probably the best resource for that is Judith Glazer, who has written Conversational Intelligence. We did a program back in 2014, and I'm just going to include it here because it does a really good job of explaining why and how telling and selling does not work and how, in fact, leaders create resistance by selling and telling their ideas and staff and rather than working with them using some brain-friendly approaches, which obviously is a far better way of doing it, far more human. I have to say I was inspired today to, to go this direction because I saw once again an article in the newspaper about a company that is promoting its activities in mental health and talking about what, what a fantastic job they're doing to help community health. And meanwhile, according to the news reports, their employees were resigning from stress-related illness and or on leave because of stress-related illness, all due to brutal, the brutal pressure to meet sales targets. So this is a serious case where one hand isn't paying a whole lot of attention to what the other hand is doing. And it's probably not the only company doing that. In fact, we can be assured it is not. So I thought we would, in this case, listen to this program with Judith Glazer, and then I'll come back and share some of the applications that you can use, if you want, to begin to work with these conditions in a more constructive and human-friendly human way. I look forward to getting your feedback, because if this kind of approach doesn't work, I'm sure you'll tell me. This is just an experiment to see how this meets your needs. So without any further ado, here's Judith Glazer and the conversation that we had on conversational intelligence and the neuroscience of trust. Today I'm delighted to talk to Judith Glazer, who is the author of Conversational Intelligence. And the subtitle for that is How Great Leaders Build Trust and Get Extraordinary Results. Now, that may sound trite in a certain way, but it's not in terms of the large amount of depth that Judith brings to the topic, and also because it's the intersection between conversations and your brain, and neuroscience more specifically. Now, Judith, just to give you a bit of background on Judith, she's a co-organizational anthropologist. She writes for Harvard Business Review, Psychology Today. She's got eight blogs running, so there's a lot of material out there. She's been studying the, how br the brain works and how trust is built and so forth since she was 14. So she, there's a, a long legacy of, of understanding and experience that goes with what she'll share with us today in this program. The reason why I have her on the program is because conversations are one of the many ways that companies can engage in their own transformation. There's many ways of doing it, changing their cultures deeply, and how you have these conversations is one of them. So Judith, welcome to the program. I'm so thrilled to be here, Donna. I, I love and I'm excited about the thought that, and now we're going to do it together, that we have a lot of things in common about what we believe is important for people to learn how to do better and what human beings are all about. So I, I'm really excited about sharing ideas with you today. 
Well, let's get started. Conversational intelligence is a another form of intelligence. What exactly is it? Yeah, so I, what I have put on the map is that while some intelligences, like intellectual intelligence, we rate people have highs and lows, and we even say that some people are just much more intelligent than others, uh, or emotional intelligence, some people are better than others. What I believe is that conversational intelligence is hardwired into every human being, and that what we need to learn how to do is, is understand this God-given capability that we have, and then learn how to activate it in the best way possible. So it's tied into the fact that all human beings have a FOXP2 gene, which is a language gene. All human beings also have what are called transcription genes, or genes that are actually designed to be impacted by the environment. They're not just the ones that we're given that, that give us our physical characteristics and certain things that don't change, but these are all about how interacting with human beings in the environment actually activates a set of genes and could activate new sets of genes. So as that knowledge came into the world through my research, I realized that this was a a God-given intelligence that we all have and that I raised the question in my mind and I continue to do that and I'd be curious about your thinking on this, but if we could only start having at young ages activating for children their conversational intelligence, how much different their lives might be, what new trajectories would evolve when they learn how to do the skill, which for some people seems to be very challenging, but imagine all of us can do it given the right context. Well, I do believe you've got a story behind that, do you not? A story about children and, and intelligence and activation? Because I think, I think the stories are relevant to really understanding what's innately within us. Yes. So I got a research fellowship at Drexel University in the Department of Human Behavior and Development. And I actually, when I said I've been doing this since I was 14 years old, I was, that's where it started, and by the time I got to my fellowship 10 years later, I had money put aside, and GE developed for my professor, Dorian Stegg, GE developed what they called the Edison Responsive Environment. It's a, we called it the Talking Typewriter for short, but it was a typewriter that enabled itself to be programmed at five levels, and the first level was just normal typewriter, the second level, you push the letters and they speak the names, then you start to get into the more complex programming where what we did and what made this so, such a profound 10-year longitudinal study is that we studied children and used the, who were using this instrument, this tool, this, this uh, environment to learn how to read. And they didn't read on Dick and Jane books. They read on their own writings, their own ideas, their own pictures. So we literally had two-year-old kids to six-year-old kids draw pictures of what they whatever they wanted to in the universe. And that became the content that we used for each child. Each child had their own stories. They were all different. And the beauty of this is that we learned that when children learn how to read this way through their own, through this special environment, because it was designed to be non-judgmental. I was trained for six months to learn how to not send judgment signals to a child. Even if I didn't think their story was a great one, that was not the issue. And so as it turned out at the end of the study, each child's IQ, because we tested it before and after, each child's IQ jumped 15 points, which is unheard of in any research. Nobody's ever taken a a test to do IQ again. That could be one of the reasons why, but most of all, I think it was because what we were doing is activating a different part of the brain. The kids who we followed for 10 years did better in school. Academically, all of them went on to college regardless of um, where they started socioeconomically or where they started with low IQs. They were healthier emotionally. 
um, they were um, not self-centered in a negative way at all, but other-centric. So there's something very magical about being raised in an environment, and let's transfer this over to business and home, to live in an environment where people understand the rules that drive conversational intelligence and how to shape those environments that we live in every day to activate the highest level of intelligence possible. Wow, that speaks a lot to the power of judgment in performance. I mean, whether you're a child or an adult, the more judgment you receive, the less cap- you know, the less function, the less functional yep. you become, essentially. Yep, wow. that's exactly. You're exactly right. The the question is that we, a lot of people aren't aware when they're sending signals of judgment. A lot of times we don't we think we're telling something to someone like it's a a piece of fact or it's a data point. Yet human beings are so sensitive to things like tone and being hurt to receive rejection, uh, exclusion. These are all the the triggers that in 0.07 seconds activate the lower part of our brain where our primitive brain is designed to protect us from harm. And judgment from human beings is as strong or more important something that we need to protect ourselves from than from a car coming right up right on us. So I think you've hit the point of, of why this research was so valuable, certainly in making those distinctions between being appreciated and having the kind of loving interactions and those that make us feel like we're small and minimized and, and being rejected from our clan. This takes us straight into workplace environments where there's a lot of fear about is the company going to survive? Will I have my job tomorrow? Can I contribute or not? What, mm-hmm. what Can I even take risks or not? How does the workplace inf- affect both your capacity to perform from a neuroscience point of view and from a trust point of view? Let, let me give you the neuroscience first, and then I'm going to give you best practices that go with it. The neuroscience is that because distrust and fear are located in the lower brain, when we feel those things, the questions you raised are, where do I fit in? What's going to happen during the change? Will I lose my job or to have territory taken away? All those questions are in our mind during that time. And when they activate our fear network, which is in the lower brain, the, the um, amygdala, then cortisol is elevated. And cortisol is a neurotransmitter that closes down most of the parts of the brain, like the prefrontal cortex, which is where strategic thinking and our humanity thinking and our creative thinking live. And so by its very nature, when you feel threatened in an environment that's going through change, you, you don't get smarter, you seem to get dumber, if that makes any sense. Well, it does. And I mean, one of the things I find interesting, having read your book, is that there is an executive brain, and it's your prefrontal cortex. And there's a whole lot of things in, in workplace environments that work against accessing it. So, you know, I think it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, it, it's, there are a lot of things that are against accessing it. Yet the, the expectations that are built into every person's job are that they deliver against these higher expectations, such as their strategic thinking, being able to invent new things, getting along with their peers, developing new strategies that no one's ever thought about before. All of those are capacities that live in our prefrontal cortex. And what's unique about this story of trust and distrust is that when fear is activating us, we also are activating our distrust networks in the lower brain. When we connect with people and when the environment becomes safe, even though there are lots of changes going on, and you and I need to talk about how to create those, those safe environments in the face of change. But when that happens, the trust network gets activated because trust lives in the prefrontal cortex. And so it's like the two are toggling back and forth, distrust lower brain, trust upper brain. 
fear lower brain, trust <laughs> upper brain. You know, they are, they are going hand in hand and they are opposite. And so leaders really need to understand that neuroscience is being activated. It's not just words and it's not just information. It's no, the neuroscience of we, of whether we're in this together or not, whether I'm fearful or I'm not. And once leaders understand that framework and understand what they need to do behaviorally and emotionally different to activate the trust networks, even in the face of difficult change. These are the best leaders. These leaders are going to change and transform their organizations in a positive way. We've also got companies that are struggling with some of their communications. There's some low trust issues in, in, a, in a lot of companies. What is the arc? What is the best practices shift from low low capacity to have the difficult conversations, which is pretty much essential to mm-hmm. the, to the higher level of, of more executive level and, and high performance level. What, what can companies do to get there? There are a couple things that companies can do. You can't change the change. It's inevitable. It's if you stop it, you stop the progress of your organization. You also stop learning. So what we need to do is change the conversational space and leaders can do a number of things. Number one, they can make a space safe by actually letting people know that what the change is, being transparent about what the changes are, being transparent that we may not have all the answers, and also be transparent about needing the help of people in the organization to try to figure it out. Once a leader becomes transparent about what the truth is, all of a sudden people settle down. It's magical. It's amazing when a leader can be that open and that clear about grounding people It's when leaders don't talk about it at all or promise people false promises. Oh, this is not going to impact you. And then the very next day, the person sitting next to you gets fired because of something to do with the change. You know, those those are counter (laughs) balancing forces that that don't work on behalf of uh, feeling safe. So being able to be transparent is one thing. And the second most important thing is let people know where they stand. In other words, if a person has a job that may be at risk, you say, you know, we're looking at all everybody's job right now. And those in our department or those in our area, we're looking at those jobs too. That doesn't mean you're going to lose a job. And we're going to stay open about what's going on so that you can know how the changes are taking place and get, you can be given an opportunity to stand up for a different job. That sounds like an, a difficult message to say, but people feel better when they know where they stand than when they're um, being shocked by the waves that that are their imaginary thinking that scare them generally more than reality. So creating safe spaces in the face of change. Does that make sense? Oh, gosh, yes, it does indeed. And I'm certainly, I'm familiar with that process when working with a lot of organizational change experiences. And and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, all people need to do is just say, look, this this is it. It's just telling the truth without without blaming or without judging the situation. This is what we know. This is what we don't know. It's the simplest way to calm the storm I know of. So it's, it's good to hear how it works uh, from a neuroscience point of view as well. Exactly. And then if people know a little bit, even if, they, if, if the company doesn't know whether that person's going to be there or not, but just you say things like, my door is open. I'm going to share with you news as it comes. If you can tell somebody that you know, certain parts of the company have, haven't been impacted as much as others, anything that gives them a sense of where they stand and that you're available, making yourself available to them to talk about it, 
is another important thing. I can hear the voice of the skeptic in the background saying, yeah, right, give me a break. How can conversations possibly shift a company's culture? What would you say to the skeptic who, who's had an experience with organizations that has been less than pleasurable <laughs> and, and, and to give them hope. I mean, they may well be working for a company now to give them hope in, and, and basically an understanding of what to trust in this, in this whole process of, of elevating conversations to a higher level. You may know that I've been in business for three decades. So I started in the eighties and uh, there was no work being done around transformational conversations or around change. And so I was, a pioneer in the field, experimenting with things. And I come out of a graduate program. I got another degree in corporate and political communications. And in it, I learned to be a video producer. I learned to become a better writer. And I learned to structure, think in terms of structuring organizational spaces for shifting how people think. That's where all of that started to really become clear as an academic. And so I was invited to participate in a couple big projects. And one of them was with Clairol, the hair uh, color company. Most people know about it because now both men and women use hair color, including young kids at very young ages. But at the time, in the very late 90s, they were thinking, Clairol was thinking about closing down Clairol because their market share had dropped so much. The naturals theme was coming into the world, and so people didn't want to put hair dye on their head. And so Steve Sadov, the CEO, had to go one way or the other, either innovate or die. And so as an um, incredible executive, forceful and dramatic thinker, I was invited to participate in the company by creating a communication network inside of Clairol so that people could share information during the change. So I produced a video every six weeks. I did two newsletters, one called The Challenger, the other called The Manager, one about how people were, were challenging the status quo, the other about what things people needed to learn to do differently in order to be change agents. And I also created a facilitator's guide for people to have conversations about what was going on in the change. Clairol's story is one of those stories that ends up in a Harvard Business Review, um, a Harvard article, research article, beside just being in itself standalone amazing. Because in about four years, Clairol, which was at the time a $250 million company, went to a $4.5 billion company and was purchased by Procter & Gamble at that point. And Procter & Gamble bought this process that I had created for them as well because it had such an amazing ability to sustain health and the spirit of growth even in the face of potential uh, loss of a company's brand. Well, that's quite the story. Uh, Judith, where can people find out more about conversational intelligence to become more intelligent? <laughs> <laughs> or to activate their... Exactly, their, to activate that, that uh, innate ability. I have a website called conversationalintelligence.com. And the first homepage takes you right over to Amazon so you could buy the book. What I would also suggest for people that are serious about developing the skills that are in the book, which are life-changing, because I know I get emails from people all over the world, is that I'm finding, and I'm learning this from the people that are using my book, that uh, one couple said, uh, and, and couples use it too, they said, we both bought the book, we're both reading it, and we come together and we talk about chapters one at a time about what we're learning and how what, what's in the chapter will impact us. Because I wrote this to be like its own facilitator's guide to help people ingest the knowledge easily. 
So coaches have used it and given it to their clients. Leaders have used it and given it to their teams. As they talk through it, all of a sudden, the new language, like using things like um, oxytocin and, and cortisol or talking about different parts of the brain, the amygdala hijack or the conversational dashboard, with it, which helps facilitate a framework for change. Once that language becomes part of your language, all of a sudden, people say, I was never able to talk about this before, but now I have the language to do it. So that's what I would suggest for people who are just wanting to put their toe in the water with conversational intelligence. Great idea. Judith, thanks for being on the program. You're welcome. There are companies that are actually addicted to action, 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 do, 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 do. And it's all towards targets like the example I mentioned at the beginning of the program. What's interesting about that is that there's absolutely no time for reflection, no time for intuition, no time to look up and see what's coming down the pipe. No foresight, in other words. It's just a, a, a really entrenched, deep trench of addiction to action and the adrenaline that goes with that. And, of course, the, the downside of that is there's absolutely no chance of innovation, no chance of having a human-centered workplace, which is really critical for, for the company because if the people aren't well, neither is the company going to be well. They're compromising massive opportunity. So what I offer is, uh, and, and this is something that I've been playing with in, in the workshops I've been doing, is Judith has uh, a way of just sort of saying, let's, let's look at discovery questions. What are the discovery questions so we can discover what's going on? And then wh- where do we, where, what can we, how can we work together to do things differently? And what, what would be the outcome that we could look for there, not in terms of specifics, but in terms of a t- accomplishment? What kind of accomplishment are we looking for because companies are shifting from engineering outcomes toward actually creating on short loops in terms of iteration 30 day two week whatever the framework happens to be short loops of 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 confidence you know getting things done but getting them done in in short term so you get immediate feedback from the environment on whether this works or whether it doesn't. And you can apply this in your own life as well. It's, it's uh, another way of doing it, it's certainly, and it's a good place to practice, is that reality is changing extremely fast. And so to get locked into any particular uh, plan or, or firm set of steps to get somewhere is really going to be working against your, your progress. So much better to try, some stu- try things on in short-term loops, get some feedback, but do it together. Put the problem together in front of you. And what I say together, what I'm referring to here, for example, is a manager who is having to implement Agile. Agile is a very big threat to traditional management worldview. And, uh, and so instead of fighting one another, instead of making this uh, increase the tension in the workplace, let go of the tension, put the, put the opportunity in front and see what you can create out of it that benefits everybody. That's the real more mature way, but it does take a sophisticated set of skills to, to pull off. With respect to the targets and sales and the pressure, putting pressure on people to come up with completely meaningless uh, target metrics, this is, this is where companies must rethink their, their approach to how business gets done because these are companies that are not generating health internally and so they can hardly generate wealth internally, externally. Um, it, it, the numbers are there. We know the research is there, but companies refuse to believe it because they, they still are stuck in the idea that if they focus on profit, they'll accomplish more, which is a long ways from the actual truth. Anyway, I hope that gives you some ideas of how to proceed. You know, step back, get some discovery 
uh, work done in, some questioning and so exploration, and then look at what can be done differently for taking action. Break that loop of run, 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 do, 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 and you'll have some chance to pivot and and create uh, much better outcomes for everyone, both personally as, as humans in the workplace and also for the customer, which often gets left, who often gets left out in the uh, in the course of running uh, like mad. This is a shorter program this week. It's simply due to the fact I've been traveling a lot. More programs coming up. Thank you for sharing. I really appreciate the support. You'll find me on Twitter at epdonna, D-A-W-N-A underscore Jones. You'll also find me on LinkedIn and on, of course, the website, which is www.frominsighttoaction. Com. Decision Making for Dummies is becoming increasingly recognized as more of an advanced book for decision making. Certainly the, the intuitive science that's in there is helpful. And more recently now, there is the recently released The Intelligence of the Cosmos book with the chapter in it that I contributed on self-organization, emotion in the workplace, epigenetics, and networks, all of which are the deeper dynamics for inside company cultures, and of course, informing transformational change. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening in. I hope you have a great couple of weeks before I see you in the next program.